the Austrian writer, and by the way, before I start, I'm looking at his name, and I was about to say his name is Hermann Brock, but he's Austrian. I believe it's probably Hermann Brock, but maybe it's neither of those. Let's just compromise and call him Hermann Brock. How about that? The Austrian writer Hermann Brock, I think, once wrote, Those who live by the sea can hardly form a single thought of which the sea would not be part. Well, my guest today on the program would certainly agree with that sentiment. After all, he did grow up by the ocean. And his name is much easier to pronounce than Urban Brock. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. of my guest today on the program, Reckless Eric. Let me tell you a little bit about Reckless Eric. Although he was born Eric Golden in East Sussex, my guest today on the program is perhaps best known as Reckless Eric. After all, it was under that moniker where he first got attention with his song, The Whole Wide World, a shambolic blast of joyful punk that landed him a deal with Stiff Records. Now, at the time, Stiff was just getting started, but they already had Ian Dury, Elvis Costello, and Nick Lowe on their roster. Not too shabby. Over the course of his career, the art school graduate Reckless Eric proved he was more than just one killer song. Since the 70s, he's cranked out almost 10 perfect solo albums of pure, scruffy pop magic that demonstrate he's a singular and very special talent. His new one, Leisure Land, is the perfect album to put on to say goodbye to summer. Wistful, nostalgic, and equal parts ferocious and elegant, Leisure Land is filled with ragtag pop, garage stomp, and percussive muscle buoyed by beats and loops. And it's fabulous. Over the years, Reckless Eric has played with the Mighty Mighty Bostones, The Damned, John Wesley Harding, The Proclaimers, and his wife, Amy Rigby. Meanwhile, his work has been covered by everyone from Cage the Elephant to Green Day's Billy Joe Armstrong. Eric's been in a lot of bands like the Len Bright Combo, the Hitsville House Band, and the Donovan of Trash. And the fact is, everything he does is wonderful and brilliant and infectious. This guy is the real deal. And this conversation was a blast. So without further ado, here's me and Reckless Eric having a conversation at the end of summer right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast.
late nineties. I lived in France and I came back and I ended up living in the middle of Brighton. And I got to a point I couldn't wait to leave. I lived there for a few years. I don't know. About four years or something, and I had this flat that I bought on a bent mortgage, an apartment, you know, and it doubled in value in the space of a year. It doubled in value, so I sold it. I mean, I think I was very lucky, really, but it was awful. Like, there were people every Saturday, you'd go up to the train station around that area, and there'd be people running off trains, almost fighting each other to get into the uh, realtors' offices, you know, because they all wanted to buy something in Brighton because Brighton was hot. What happened? Why did Brighton, like, why did it suddenly have this sort of... um, Well, it had always had a kind of a thing about it because um, a lot of film stars lived there in the 40s, 50s, 60s. You'd have all these film stars and they would... uh, um, Theatre stars, a lot of theatre stars to, to start with because... They could get the Brighton Bell, which was this luxury train, and it was timed so that they just had time to to get off stage at whatever West End theatre they were at and rush to Victoria Station, you know, with uh, like still removing their slap as they went on in the taxi, and then they would come down to Brighton. And this train, it had... Um, it, uh, I, I, I remember seeing it when I was a kid and it had these brocade curtains and it had it had little lampshades in each window and everything, you know, and it was full of posh people, basically. <laughs> so Brighton has always had a kind of seaside glamour. Yeah, but it was raffish. It was really quite, it was quite dangerous. Have you ever seen the film Brighton Rock? No. Really? Yeah, I should. No, I should see it. Read the book by Graham Greene. I know the book. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's better actually. Really, and uh, the race course gangs. Then there were the antique dealers, and with the antique dealers, there was a kind of seedy kind of, you know, um, steal to order kind of money laundering kind of like, uh, you know, fencing of property and all this kind of stuff, you know, that was going on in the background. Then you've got the seafront and all the day trippers, you know. So you had like seaside glamour and seaside thuggery. Oh, absolutely. Yes, yes, that would be about it. Yeah. And all the rest of it, you know, the prostitution and whatever else. And then it got to be in this place like, I mean, when the the Thatcher era came in, it was one of the dole on sea type places. You know, if I'm going to be long term unemployed, I might as well be long term unemployed somewhere nice. Oh, you know, don't blame people, really. So they would come along and like a lot of the big apartment houses, flat houses on the seafront, the big buildings, they were kind of made into very small living units and filled with people whose rent was being paid by the Department of Health and Health and Social Security. 
so or the Department of Social Security, as it became. And um, and then it got to being this kind of thing. Like, I mean, while I lived there, I was forever, I was waking up young men who were sleeping in my doorway, you know, and I'd say, what are, you, are you all right? You know, and I think, oh, thank God they're not dead, you know. Because, yeah, and then I'd give them a cup of tea and say, well, well what, what's going on? You know, and they say, oh, I come down here from Sheffield because I can't get work up, you know, all that kind of thing. And, and you see, you know, and they'd be really keen that, that they were going to come down to start a new life. And two weeks later, you'd see them wobbling about on the street with a can of very strong lager. And it was terribly sad. But you know what can you what can what well yeah there's plenty that could be done about it but it's not it's not done people aren't looked after they aren't guided they're you know I I, I found it sad um, and on the other side of that you've got people who are falling over themselves to 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 buy places to live and then buy somewhere that they could rent out to somebody else you know and all of that it's awfully uh charitable of you to make a cup of tea and have a conversation with someone who's been sleeping on your doorstep some people would be a little more um not as kind as you to do that well i, I don't mind as long as they didn't pee in the doorway you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah, i mean well, no i mean like you're not kind of, you know people also you know i mean i'm supposed to be like a songwriter or something i'm a you know an artist of some sort so shouldn't i be interested in people and their stories really uh, I'm not going to stride over them and go to my important work as a as a social documenter or something. <laughs> so you you grew up in Brighton as a boy. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. Um, no, I grew up there as an old man. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm sorry. <laughs> I. I, I grew up, I was born down the road about 10 miles from Brighton in a seaside, in a, well, not a seaside town, but a, yeah, a seaside town. It was a, a fishing port, like a, and a, a port, basically, a small port that had a ferry that went, it had, it had the ferry that went to Dieppe, which is in France, um, and it had the, Parker Pen Company and some engineering works and the Bevel, Bevan, the Bevan Funnel uh, Reproduction Furniture Factory. And uh, it was really run down and it kind of still is. It's a shame because there's something really wonderful about it. And, you know, it used to have a Victorian swing bridge, which was dangerous, and they wouldn't allow two buses to go on it at the same time. And I remember this diver telling me that he'd been down under the bridge and you could literally punch your hand through the bridge supports. There was nothing holding that damn bridge up. But every day, four men would 
would they would shut the bridge off, then they'd disconnect the gas main which was on the bridge. So half the town didn't have any gas, you know, for the time they opened the bridge. Then they would put this pole up in the middle of the bridge and slot two other poles through it. And then they'd all walk round in a circle, pushing the poles and it turned the bridge round. So it was, it was in the same direction as the river and created a channel that a cargo ship could go through to get to the docks that were on the north side of the bridge. And it used to be like there'd be a five-mile tailback in every direction. And <laughs> <laughs> that. Yes, um, and a smell, of, a smell of gas, you know, from the disconnection of the gas main. And then they would, you know, get the pole, they would wait for the boat to go past, and then they'd set to and walk round in the other direction until they got it connected. Then they'd connect up the gas main and everything, open the gates, and everyone would carry on. It would take four men to do that. Yeah, four strong men. They pushed round in a circle, and it, they, there were cogs underneath. The, it was a swing bridge. Mm. Marvellous. Yeah. When I was really young, there was a train. There was a, a, a locomotive, like a steam locomotive, that came out of some gates. I mean, it's all nonsense when you're a kid. I love this about being a kid, that you don't have to make sense of it. Now, where's it going? Why is it doing that? It just does. And it came out of some gates and it went across the bridge um, and disappeared through some gates at the other side of the bridge behind the bus stop. And there was a man with a red flag. <laughs> what was he doing? He was safety, you know. There was a bloody great big locomotive coming across the swing bridge. You need a man with a flag. Right. Fantastic. Did that make you... It's funny because those are very poetic images. Um, yes. Just like, you know, Johnny Cash writing about trains. I mean, I would think that yeah. those would lend themselves well to a romantic vision of for an artist. Yes. Yeah. And then down the road, you know, you've got, you've got this bloody great big ferry, like a car ferry, eventually a car ferry. Um Oh, it was a car ferry in the first place. In 1961 or 50, the first time the Beatles went to Hamburg, they drove in their comma van from, from Liverpool all the way down to New Haven. And there's a photo that you can find it on the internet of their van on a crane, like there's a crane and it's on slings and it's being loaded onto the onto the ferry at New Haven. They sailed from New Haven. Well, They've never been anywhere much. I mean, they've been never been outside of the United Kingdom, and they went to Hamburg, but they can't, they did it from New Haven, and at the time that they did it. I lived just up the road. I was born in a house. I wasn't born in hospital. I was born in the living room of our house, which was three doors up from the factory where my dad worked. He worked at the Pen Parker Pen Company. 
Oh, uh, yeah, so it, it is It is kind of poetic. I was born at 20 past five. At half past five, the factory turned out. My dad stood at the gate. He had my sister in his arms, who was like two and a half at the time. And as his workmates were all walking past and they were going to the station and the bus stop and everything and, you know, riding their bicycles, he's going, it's a boy. I thought it's like, it's a rock opera. <laughs> I mean, you you know, you 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 could make this up. I'm not making it up. It's very strange. It's a strange beginning to have. For you growing up, did you look at all these images of boats and things and think like, where where is the world? What's going on out there? Um, I was talking to to. Yes. Did it in other words? Did it make you kind of curious about? what you couldn't see. I didn't know there was anything actually there that I couldn't see mm. when I was very young. You don't, do you? No. You can only see what 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 is evident, you know, and then it 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 turns out there's stuff that you don't know about. I mean, when I was about 11, there was this teacher who had a map of the world on a on a it was painted onto a chalkboard. And uh, he had a piece of chalk, and he got everyone in the class. He got uh, he got everyone in the class to to come out. He got he, and and he'd say, right, um, you had to come up to the board and put a mark where whatever city was. And uh, I got New York, and I put it somewhere around where Kansas is, because obviously. You know, New York, I mean, I knew it was the capital of America. So it was probably in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I didn't, I had no idea, really, um, about the world. Um, it was very strange to see this boat going and suddenly sort of like you had this realisation that this boat was going to France and I'd never been there, but apparently they spoke a different language. And this was, this was quite a, a strange idea. It, you know, all these kind of things as you're growing up, they dawn on you slowly. They speak a different language there. It's across the sea. And you can't imagine it. You can't imagine what any of that would be like. It's almost disappointing when you grow up and you find out and the mysteries all reveal themselves. When you started to travel, did you, were you kind of immediately intoxicated by the idea of going somewhere and arriving somewhere that you hadn't been? Well, like, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's a, it's, a, it's a kind of, it's a, it's a development. You know, you start off like sort of walking a bit too far from the house and hoping you can remember the way back, and then you learn to ride a bicycle, and it's like, wow, this is it. You know, and like, you know, you're kind of twelve years old, and like you go out for a bicycle ride and you'd be gone half the day and it would take you the rest of the day to come home again. And and then you, oh, what's that? That's a cat. That's a big orange cat, yeah. 
they are. We haven't got any animals, so I'd parade one out if I could, but uh, I can't. <laughs> um, um, yeah, so like then it's, I mean, I you know, I learned to drive. I learned to drive very young for, for England. I mean, like I was 17 when I passed my driving test. And I did that because my dad was going blind at the time and uh, uh, he had cataracts and it wasn't a simple business in those days. So I, I used to drive him to work every day. Uh, which was hilarious. He'd tell me what I'd do. He couldn't see a bloody thing. And it was like me driving the car. This is good, you know, and I sort of realised the possibilities of being extra mobile. And uh, I used to I used to go hitchhiking when I was older. I used to I used to hitchhike with and I had a little tent and a sleeping bag on a transistor radio, you know, and probably a paperback book and like go off and just go wherever it led me. Did All you ever encounter any trouble? There wasn't much trouble in those days. Um, then I went to art college and you never told anyone that you went to art college because they go, well, what use is that? I work in a factory. You know, and that everyone had this kind of thing. Now, you know, years later, I mean, like when everyone realised that they'd been conned in a way and, uh, you know, a lot of people didn't have a job and all the rest of it, people were, that's great, that's really good, you know, but then it was like it was a shortcut to being beaten up. <laughs> and I had a friend who said, you know, Never tell a girl you're in a band. It used to work, but it doesn't anymore. And that was in 1973. They were wrong, though. I think telling a girl you're in a band is a great way to get a girl to, to date you. Maybe it's changed again, but he had a point, you know. Um, you know, I mean, like, uh, gosh, I don't know. When I was younger, I mean, we thought we were glamorous. <laughs> <laughs> But a guy with a guitar is it has a certain appeal to women. It seems over the years, it seems like that's a good move to make. Yeah, I mean, it's a funny thing. I remember, I remember this girl when I was at art school saying, "You put a guitar on, you change, you square up." You know, right? Um, my daughter was terrified of me when she was tiny, little. You know, really tiny. She, she goes, "Mummy, he's gone all weird." <laughs> <laughs> it's just because <laughs> you were holding a guitar yeah you know i'm a writer and i go to a cafe and i take out a pen no one looks at me i become more invisible but if i had a guitar you become no, no, I, no I think people have got oh for god's sake get him out of here yes no i think uh, <laughs> um you're doing something wrong there i think you should work on it you know okay <laughs> when you get the pen out Square. <laughs> square. How do you square up with a pen, Eric? I, I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm sure it could be done. I'll, I'll get back to you. I'll. Okay. I'll work on it in private. <laughs> but did you notice a kind of um, 
a galvanizing effect socially? Like when you were walking around with a guitar, did you notice you at least you got attention from people that different? No, no, you never. Like I mean, like I can remember having to walk down the street with a guitar. Like you tried to hide it because, like, there'd always be some builders or workmen or idiots. You know, go, hey, Bill Haley. Like that, you know. I mean, Bill Haley, you know, come on. But, you know, like they think it was like, so you didn't want to be like that. And I, I, I never wanted, well, it's weird because I used to think, yeah, well, I'm going to get this band going and like, we'll have this band and we'll go out and do some gigs and then they'll wake up. Then the, the, the then girls will like me, kind of thing, you know. And I'll be, you know, I won't be just some awkward adolescent. I would be, I'd be a guy in a band, and 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 they did, you know. I mean, like suddenly you got the attention. I'm going. They only like me because I'm in a band. How shallow. <laughs> <laughs> it took me years to learn how to be shallow. <laughs> when, so, you, when you were um doing those little camping excursions the, the hitchhiking things were you looking for quiet at peace or were you looking for like what were you after and when you were doing that alcohol kicks girls um you know adventure sex anything anything i could get hold of because like you know i mean like childhood like my childhood surroundings were in a you know for a kid they were idyllic i mean big trains and like you know being born next to a railway line locomotives and the goods yards the freight yards and everything and the river and the boats and then the beach Cheers, and and then you've got the fun fair type aspect of it over in Brighton. I mean, you've got all of this, but you start to get older, and it's like, uh, you know, we moved to a, we moved up the road, you know, in the in the course of betterment, if you like. Um, my parents moved moved us to um, a sort of like much more. Um, nicer place where it was all bungalows it was all these bungalows and retired people and like i was in the i i passed an examination like i didn't know that was called the 11 plus exam and when you got to 11 they had to decide whether you went for the to the school for for no hopers where you did kind of woodwork and stuff or, or or you went to the grammar school where you did like latin and german and you know stuff and like were expected to go to university and the test was really easy but i took it all my friends they failed it and they did it quite deliberately but i was i was off school i was sick at the time of the test i had bronchitis used to get that bronchitis really badly and so I was off school and I I didn't know it was kind of like I'm going on oh, test oh this is really easy you know and I passed it it was the worst thing I could have done <laughs> so I had to go to the grammar school and it was kind of they true because I came from like New Haven and we'd moved to this horrible place called Peace Haven and it was really kind of 
a place where no one in their right mind would live. I mean, my parents came from the north, so they thought it was nice, but everyone else thought it was horrible. Just all these modern bungalows, and like they had, they eventually built these concrete roads in between. But there was nothing, and it was on top of a cliff, and it was somehow a bit desolate. When you get to being like, you know, 15 or something like that, you go, what is there must be more to life than this? And uh, that's when I really got the, the wanderlust. When you think about these things, when you think about the past, um, I'm in my 50s and I, I think a lot about, I'm always juxtaposing the past with the present. I'm not sure what to do with that. Um, but do you think that nostalgia kind of informs, uh, is informative or can inform, um, almost like provide new insight into the past and also well, at the same time the present? The first thing is there's nostalgia, which is, oh, it was so much better then. Do you remember when we were young and like, you know, there's a huge trade in that. I mean, it's why people would like stand in front of a group called Generation Sex with some old men braying the lyrics to, you know, I don't know if you saw Glastonbury. Yes, but, I You know, I mean, there's some stuff that's quite wonderful and, and there's things like that. I mean, the nostalgia, like... Um, you're not going to get it back. The, what the past, it's not, the past isn't nostalgia. It's people's, um, it's what people turn it into. But what the past exists for you to learn from. Now, I, I fully believe that if you don't learn a lesson that life is trying to teach you, it will keep coming back again and again and again, and you'll have failed relationship after failed relationship. You'll lose job after job, friend after friend, until you figure out why this is happening, you know, and do something about it. And this is what the past is very good for. And also the past is kind of, like your roots and without the past if you were uh, a tree you'd be all upper branches and you'd be nothing holding it up so what's going to happen to you you're just going to fall through space so the past is your your kind of roots and your foundations and your support and if you if you if you think about it without getting all kind of maudlin and nostalgic about it and and wondering how you can still be that person i can't be 23 again you know we can't we can't do that and it's no good pretending you 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 can you can start to learn how to handle yourself at a later age. This is what I think somehow. 
I, I don't know if I'm making sense or if I'm just a rambling old fool. At this no, point. no, it makes perfect sense. What you're saying is basically that there's that the past is is the past and nostalgia are two different things, and the past is actually instructive, so it yeah. can actually help you be an adult that can yeah. function in a sturdier way than yesterday. Yeah. I think that's about right, yeah. And it's like, it's a great comfort to know, uh, I think it's good to know who you are. I mean, I wish I'd have been more sure-footed when I was younger. Uh, when I first started making records and stuff, I was blown by the wind. I was sort of like told... Uh, do this and I, I, because I, you know I started to think I didn't have an idea in my head I was doing what I was told you know which I feel that if I'd have been more confident in who I was and where I came from instead of thinking oh I'm supposed to be like this I'm supposed to be like this I would have been happier and I done better work or whatever, you know. But you learn these things later. Yeah, it's weird because there are some people that I'm sure you saw these people. I mean, I'm guessing someone like Nick Lowe might have been like this, but I don't know if that's true, where he would have been like so self-assured and confident that he couldn't be pushed around. Um, but I don't know if that's true, but I'm sure that you saw people like that where you where you kind I of went... I think, well, I, I, I feel that mm, Elvis Costello, I, I had never come across anybody who seemed so openly and kind of bluntly ambitious, mm. which is okay. I mean, like, you know, they, this it's drive. I mean, I've met people like that since, but I've never come across anything like that. And it's a drive to succeed. And it's like, you do what's necessary to do this. And, and, and that takes a kind of confidence. It takes a lot of courage, really. And I think Nick Lowe, I mean, maybe I'm sure they had lots of insecurities, same as I did. But I think they were probably better at hiding it. In a way, you could say they were tougher than me. You know, um, uh, I don't know. I mean, uh, Nick Nick seemed to be the most confident and cool person. But I mean, he had an outrageous drinking problem at one point. You know, which points to him not being quite as cool and confident as you might have thought i've i've been really immersing myself in the last 10 years in the work of the fall who were a band i didn't really understand when i was younger now i <clears throat> i totally get it and someone like marky e. smith is another one of those guys who i don't think you could have pushed that guy around when he was 17 or 18 and i he was in, i don't know if he he seemed like more concerned with being who he was. I think success, so ambition didn't really factor in as much, I don't think, as with Elvis Costello, but someone like that, I don't know if you knew Marky Smith at all, but someone I, like that. I, I, I didn't really, know. I, I I saw, a, I, I was going through some papers and stuff, like, and I found an itinerary for an American tour, and uh, I saw this thing that said, 
um, like on one page, it's in a horrific day off in Boston. And then as an afterthought, I'd written, saw the fall at the Rat Club. <laughs> and I remember that. Um, we, uh, we'd been somewhere. I thought we played somewhere, actually. I don't know if it was the same day. Because it's all mixed up and jumbled up. And, but we went, I mean, this would be 1979. And they were playing at the Rat Club. And... It was great. It just sounded like completely dissolute. Is that the right word? Probably not. Um, but it sounded almost crappy, you know. Yeah. And he was he was on the stage. They all had pullovers, sweaters on, you know, and they just looked. They didn't look like a band. It was great. They didn't look like all like here they are in their finery rocking out for us, you know. They were just sort of like some blokes who happened to be there and were, you know, playing, making this racket. And he's standing there. He was eating a sandwich at one point. And, <laughs> and you know, this kind of strange monotone. And you think, God, he doesn't give a damn. He doesn't give a flying fuck about all of this. It's like, I don't think they were having a good time. Um, I think we got there and they'd started, and I think they'd been going on for long enough that all the people who thought they were going to see the latest thing from the British Isles, you know, and it was going to be, like, really hit them in the eye and be, you know, had gone, what? <laughs> you know, so, like, it was kind of, the venue seemed very spacious, and it was the Rat Club. I don't know if you've ever been to Boston. I mean, it was, you know, it was this crummy club, but it was, it was, the whole event was kind of steeped in dismalness, if you like. For people who are a little bit confrontational in their art, because there's something confrontational about about the fall. Hugely, um, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. but not kind of it's almost it's like passive aggressive confrontational. Right. It's like uh, uh <laughs> it's like I don't know, he was gonna tell you the truth whether you liked it or not. And, and um, you know, um also, it's the Manchester thing. My family come from Manchester, so I felt quite a, a kinship with it. I thought they'd almost bought the weather with them. It rains all the time in Manchester. I've seen Manchester in sunshine about five times in my whole life. <laughs> yeah, that kind of bleakness, you could... I mean, Joy Division were one of those bands where it's like, it sounded... Yeah just it sounded like the weather that's it yeah yeah the fall had that when they were at the rat club definitely i remember that it was like the weather had come with them <laughs> the town of standing water celebrates the coming of the fifth Stop. 
bands like the Stone Roses and the Smiths, those later on Manchester bands, were you a fan of those guys? Well, I kind of never quite got to grips with the Smiths for some reason. I wanted to, but I could never quite get off on the records because I thought there was, and, and I'm sure this is sacrilegious to anyone who's, you know, a devotee of the Smiths, but I thought that there was a disconnect between the words and the music, if you like, between him and the music and the the kind of, yeah. Um, but I I always love those films. I mean, like when I heard Hung, Hang the DJ, I thought that was utterly brilliant, that it's like, because the music he plays means nothing to me in my life. And I thought, that's so straightforwardly said and it makes so much sense and I can relate to it a thousand percent, you know. But there's a disconnect for me with the the music, really. But the Stone Roses, they didn't have as much to say lyrically, I think, by a long shot, as as Morrissey. He he had stuff to say, you know. Yeah. But the Stone Roses bought a vibe. Really, yeah, I suppose, yeah. Um, like, and when they came along, everyone was talking about this new band, you know, in London at the time. And they were going, oh, the Stone Roses, and I was determined not to like them. <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't like that, actually, being determined. Someone said that to me. They came to see me play not that long ago and uh, said, uh, I was determined, it was a, 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 another musician locally, and she said, I was determined not to like it. And I thought, oh, that's, that's, that's kind of like an insecurity. But it was all right, she did, you know. And it's kind of like, I say, well, I'm not a monster. <laughs> I'm, I'm just as insecure as everyone else i'm just crappy and inept and all the rest of it and like we're all just doing the best we can hopefully apart from those who aren't and don't realize that you know it's a it's a struggle but yeah so like yeah when i got it with the stone roses i absolutely love them and you know i mean to start a record with i want to be adored <laughs> it's it's really it's it's the same in a way as Morrissey saying like Ang the DJ and you're thinking that direct absolutely <laughs> the music he plays means nothing to me in my life and the same with okay you're in a band well, I want to be adored <laughs> <laughs> yeah or or later on I am the resurrection yes yes <laughs> yes. I mean, they were kind of brilliantly crass, really. But yeah, and I, I 
I thought they were just great all round. I loved the guitar playing. I loved the Manny, you know. I loved the bass playing, and I I loved everything. Like, I like the first album. Uh, people say that the second album, the the one with is it Fool's Gold and all that, you know, that that album is is the one. But I don't think so. I think the first album was it. Yeah. The first album is that the second one is a bit of a, a bit of a mess, but um, yeah, it's interesting to hear your take on that. And I think it's interesting because vibe is a vibe goes a long way. Looking back at the Stone Roses, they didn't have much to say about anything. And I think Oasis were very similar. They weren't really saying anything, um, but there certainly um, was a vibe and, and getting yeah, back to that thing um, you were saying. Like I, I, I once had to sort of talk at a symposium about British culture in, um, in, uh, it was at a university in France and it was all those people in the music industry and it was all kind of lawyers and, um, and wannabe record company kind of, I mean, it was so tacky. But uh, like, uh, I, there was uh, this idea was put forward that the, 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 the Oasis had no no social significance whatsoever and carried no political weight and i just told everyone off i said look their 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 very existence is a huge social comment and like yeah there's an element of show business about it but this is a band who's you know, who were funded on stolen car radios. This is like, uh, is it worth the aggravation to find yourself a job when there's nothing worth working for? I was looking for some action, but all I got was cigarettes and alcohol. You know, that's that's pretty pretty good for the time. I mean, that was pretty damned accurate. Um yeah my my daughter was coming up to that kind of age at the time that she was going to have to start deciding what she wanted to do with her life you know and she was a huge oasis fan i thought that yeah that that's it, it you know it made me think about how hard it is to be young in this country and there was a kind of tribal thing about oasis that they pulled together a, a, a strata of society it's almost like you know they might have known what they not have known what they wanted to say but they were going to sing it all together something like that i found them very uplifting at the start their first album was fantastic and i love uh tonight i'm a rock and roll star and he's shouting that and it's like this wonderful racket and the most un-rock and roll beat it goes into some kind of like it's almost like a three four with a kind of limp or something <laughs> i don't know what it is but yeah and then the second album was a bit less good i think it was less good because they got a good drummer before that, everything was kind of like you were like snow blind because there weren't really the fills that punctuate things. Mm. 
I kind of had that thing about Stone Roses that they could, you know, you could, like, you have dramas. Traditionally, you've got a drummer and he's like a realtor showing someone a house. He's, you know, he goes, and now we go into the living room. And then he does a nice fill and shows you into the the master bedroom or what do they call it now? They don't call it the master bedroom anymore. Because um, <laughs> it's sexist, you know, quite rightly too. I think they call it the main bedroom. But anyway, you know what I mean. And it shows you around the house, but or it shows you the route through. And we, I always thought with Oasis, it was like these ealing comedy films where you're driving north in in bad weather at night. You know, all the all the big wigs have had to drive north to sort this. Film out and they're they're in big like Bentleys with massive great headlights and they show them motoring along and it's like Oasis were like I was sitting on the road you know driving through a blizzard and there was no punctuation and I like that about them I I lost interest by the third album and uh, and then kind of like I don't know. I just lost interest. It, it wasn't a lasting thing, but I stand by the first album. Oh yeah, yeah. And you're and you're saying that the Stone Roses, oh, that their drummer was almost too good. The Stone Roses, no, no, yeah. no. I think that the drummer that they replaced the original drummer with in 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 Oasis was kind of too good. In a way, yeah, I don't know. You know, I, I've got a thing about drummers. Drummers can either make things wonderful or they can completely normalise things. I mean, imagine, well, if the Velvet Underground had had a conventional drummer when they did their first album and they'd done White Light, White Heat with a, with a, a drummer... Or, or like that's a second album actually, but never mind. But you know they've done it as a snare drum, hi hat, bass drum, kind of all you know doing it. A good fill coming into the you know, it would be, it would be all wrong. It wouldn't have that thing. A band like REM lost their drummer, and then they became almost unlistenable. Just a totally different band. Yeah, they weren't a band that I listened to at the time much, really, because someone said that a band I had at the time sounded like R.E.M. And I listened to R.E.M. That's nothing like, nothing like, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know. Do you find that, it's weird, like when I I go to the ocean, if I'm out here and I I go to the beach for, for a day or whatever, as soon as I get to the water, I feel ambitious and my whole everything changes for me there's something about and i think about your new album has a lot of seaside references to it um oh hugely it's the seaside really yeah yeah yeah, do you you find that there's something about the seaside that is cleansing is the wrong word but kind of empowering and and it kind of like it does all the emotional things that need to be done um i like that you call it it the seaside you might be the first american i've ever heard refer to it as the seaside they say the ocean and we we didn't have an ocean you know we only had the english channel uh the north sea the irish sea we didn't you know the i think like 
when you went down Cornwall, right on the west of England, right, right down on the bit on the far left, there, that, that, that's the ocean. But most people only had the sea. So it's the seaside. And that is a very English thing. I mean, it's sort of like you think the seaside and like you've got visions of ice cream and buckets and spades and, you know, kind of. Um, yeah, but there's this thing. We spend a lot of time in England um, on the north. There's the bit of England that sticks out like above London it's a big round bit above London and on the top of that is this I mean it's almost a bit desolate but we spend a lot of time there and because uh, um, basically um, we lucked into a situation where we ended up with an apartment there um, a very small apartment, which is right on the near the sea front, so we can actually spend time there. And and you go, and it's it's desolate, but you go out, and suddenly you're on the front, and you look out, and you've got this huge horizon. It's round. It's completely. It's not straight. It's round, and you could fully believe that the world is flat. And that if you sail too far, you'll, you'll fall off the edge of it. It's like a saucer or something, you know? And there are these boats all around the edges of it. And But I know, because I've learned this stuff now <laughs> as an adult, you've got, you, you look out and you've got Finland on one side, you can't see it, but it's there. It's, it's beyond over the horizon where the earth curves over. You have Finland and you have Iceland and straight ahead of you, there is nothing between you and the North Pole, but it's over that horizon, which goes in a curve. But it's this expanse it is one of the best things for clearing your head you know and i don't know bands that live by the seaside always seem to have those photos where like you know unless they're real good but most of them like they have photos like um where they, they're staring into their own destiny. It seems to be a thing that, like, oh, I don't know what we're going to do with them. So they stick them on the beach and they all sit on the sand in a line and they're staring into their own destiny. <laughs> but I always I was associate that with bands that come from seaside places. I'm probably wrong. <laughs> No, I think you're right. And I think I think there is there is something really powerful about about what the water does to the creative mind. I mean, even like you were saying, well, just well, cleansing. Straightforward. There's a very straightforward thing. When you live by the coast or on the coast, you know, people people get killed by it. I mean, like they drown. When I was a kid, like oh, there were roads that were impassable. Like when there were was a big storm and you get these storms in 
in in the autumn, the fall, as you call it here, um, the autumn and in the spring, you get these storms and the tides are really powerful. I mean, they're terrifying. You get waves smashing up against a hundred foot high cliff and like you're up above and the water comes up, it explodes up the cliff and it sprays shingle gravel stones i mean you get big rocks the road would just be covered in all these rocks that where there wasn't a cliff there were parts where you know the road went along by the beach and like it was just you know you you couldn't imagine it looked like a truck had come from a builder's merchants and there'd been a delivery of stones you know but they're all, all over the place you know you can drive through it um, but you realize there is this power to the universe. Um, like, if you consider that the moon is causing this, the moon is pulling the tide, and it's it's pulling it with such a, a powerful pull. Now, imagine it's having that much effect on that body of water water then you think uh, the human body is composed of 70 percent water might be completely dumb here perhaps I, I don't know someone scientific could explain it to us but there is i mean i think you're right because there is something that comes over you when you're in the presence of the ocean the water um you know the sea it doesn't matter i think some i think your body does respond um and it's also it's also where life came from right so so it's reckoned uh, like you know um that you know it, it, life came in the first place from the sea and came onto land as a developed i don't know I, i'm very woolly on all this i'd make a great scientist <laughs> which is a bit like it's a bit like donald trump saying um i've got a real feel for this stuff you know to a uh like a in front of a team of medical experts and he's going yeah i could be <laughs> yeah i'm getting the hang of this doctor stuff like that. Yeah. yeah but i i i, I have some uh, awareness <laughs> i feel like um you know seeing looking behind you and i see like i feel like you're very on brand with the the machinery behind you um it makes it my makes me think that you're what's that my machinery is on brand i'm in my studio yes right but yes. it makes me think that you i i wonder about you it seems to me my idea of you is that your work ethic is very you're very disciplined um oh, would you would you characterize yourself that way i try to be i mean like you know i wish i was more organized but i mean like you can't go through life like it's a regimental route march or something you know it doesn't work like that i mean like today i i i've been mixing a track for Amy, uh, like my wife is Amy Rigby, who do you know about Amy? Of course. Diary of a Mod Housewife. 
Yes, yes. Well, um, yeah, um, she's got, uh, she's making a new album, we're recording it, but um, I mixed the first track, but I had it up, I got it together, I started to put it up on the board yesterday, and like, you know, this morning I got up and um, we had a guy coming to help us, he, Bob Mould's old manager was coming, he's a goat farmer now, but... Um, <laughs> He lives up the road, but he was coming to help us take some stuff to the tip, like to the dump, you know. The uh, um, but I got up and I was organizing the track and I got it pretty well balanced. And then he arrived, our friend, like we loaded his pickup truck with like the old dishwasher that broke down and and the old kitchen sink that was horrendous and and a lot of stuff that had been sitting on our breezeway for about a year and a half while we went like what should we do and then we got all that and we went to the tip then we went and had some coffee and then I came back and I got it all together and I mixed the track and then I'm Mixed all the, like, you know, you have to do an instrumental track and this and these references and that and, oh, did all the stuff. And then and then the sun came out for a brief period, so we rushed out, with got the ladder off the side of the garage and uh, climbed up and unblocked the gutter because, like, the water's been cascading down the front of the house and pouring in through a hole in the basement. See, so my days are a catastrophe, really. And then I thought, oh, fuck, I've got that podcast to do. And here I am. Yeah, you've, you've had a big day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, so they carry on. Like, they, they, they are kind of like that, really. I'm just trying to sort of do everything, and I, I've got too much to do all the time, and... And, and right, there was a time in my life where I realised that whatever I was doing, I wished I was doing something else. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd be, I'd be, I'd be, I'd be out on tour, and all I wanted to do was be back at my place and in my studio working on some music. And then, you know, I'd be doing that and I'd think, what the hell am I doing with this? I should be out on tour. Amy said to me the other day, like, oh, I wish I had some more gigs. That was so great because we did a weekend of shows, her shows, and I was playing the band. And uh, I thought, yeah, that's that's this this attitude. There's people who can't get off the road. And it's very easy. It's because, like, in the morning, your whole day is preordained. You get up in the morning, you go, right, where have I got to go to today? And you put on, like, your overalls. You know, it's like, like the same clothes every day. And, the and you make sure you, you hardly unpack. You know, you've sort of unpacked a toothbrush and, like, you, you've got your guitar case and your bag, put the toothbrush back in it and off you go, you know, looking like a mess. And uh, you get in the vehicle and you drive for hours and hours and then you get out and you do a sound check just like you did yesterday then you do the show and then like you know you meet a load of people and then you go back to the place and like you know go to sleep 
wake up, same thing again. And then if anything inconvenient happens, like the gas bill needs paying or something, I can't deal with that. I'm on tour. <laughs> so what's the secret? It, Is the secret to just be happy? It sounds simple, but to be happy with what you're doing when you're doing it? Yeah, it's best to sort of realise that you wanted to do this. I mean, like, I... God, I, I've been in a terrible situation where I cancelled a couple of shows for that were supposed to happen in September uh, because they weren't what I wanted to do. And I felt like I was railroaded into it. I'm going, no, I can't do this. This is not right. So I said, no, I, I'm not doing it. And uh, it was an awful thing. You know, I wouldn't normally do that. I mean, sometimes I get, I'm, I'm, in the middle of doing a tour I go what the hell where why am I going to this place and, and, and I'm going right there's nothing I can do about it I've got to just do it and I have to remember that I signed up for this you know I mean it could be better conditions it could be a better place it could be somewhere more convenient but i signed up for this so you have to take a positive attitude to it you know and i always tell myself that and uh try not to wish i was doing something else it's hard it's you know here um in america i'm not sure if the term has made it over to europe but um, or the world at large, but the the, the term is FOMO, which is the stand, oh the acronym goodness. stands for the fear of missing out, right? Yeah, yeah. But that that was not something that I growing up in the eighties, I never heard of that before until the late nineties, early two thousands, where suddenly people were afraid that they were everyone was doing the wrong thing, and they actually put a name to it. Um, I think I think it existed. I mean, I couldn't. I it, you know, in the seventies, I couldn't not go out. I couldn't not go out at night because there was something that I might be missing something or I couldn't actually, I still can't. I have trouble going to bed at night because I don't want to say goodbye to the day in case there's something more to it, you know, and I should be there. And it, it, it's, it's part enthusiasm, part high anxiety, I think. You know, yeah. that would make me stay up until like, I can hardly stay awake anymore. Then I realise it, it's time to go to bed. Were but you, that I think that like the fear a... of missing out existed, but people, people, you know, get together in a way that they didn't through the internet. They and and these ideas take form. Yeah, and they're given they're given new life and they're given muscle that they may not have had if the internet had not been in place. Yeah. And also, we live in the world of acronyms. I mean, like I'm still uh, uh, like I just hear these phrase these these phrases that are just like oh, it took me years to realize what C C C S N Y was. <laughs> <laughs> you know yeah, somewhere in the back of my mind i'm still slightly slightly surprised that crosby stills and nash have got that bloke neil young in it now <laughs> <laughs> like, 
<laughs> so far, I'm the worst, you know. I told no. a really good friend of mine that I, I never cared for CSNY and he wouldn't speak to me for a month. Really, that's extreme. Um, <laughs> I had someone who said English, so he said the C word. He said, I'll never forgive you, you cunt. You made me like a Tom Petty song. That's <laughs> <laughs> me naming cover the Tom Petty song, Walls Off Wildflowers. And he's going, God, that's so good. And like, uh, did you write that? And they go, oh, no, it's a Tom Petty song. I go, what? <laughs> it's so good. It's such a great song. Yeah, I know, but he, he, it's like, because it was written by Tom Petty, he couldn't, you know. But people have these beliefs and these kind of things that that I don't know what, what it is, but I can understand that, that someone would not speak to you because you don't like Crosby, Stills and Nash. And young, or not. Young or no I'm young. I've got to go now. You don't like Crosby, Stills and Nash. <laughs> Yeah, I I uh, never got it. I heard that trained Marrakesh song the other day, and I, I just wanted to hit something. I just I just don't get it. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I I'm always listening to I listen to the the Deja Vu album and try and marry up what I'm hearing with all the stories of the discontent and the abuse, you know, the cocaine and the kind of the egos and everything, and like, uh, you know, I was just, uh, you wouldn't know it. No, no, it, you wouldn't know it. It sounds so polite um, and defer musically deferential, but um, yeah. Do you, it's so cool that you have another artist under your roof with you, but are you also in touch with other, like, especially like during COVID or um, or even just forgetting COVID, just day to day. Do you find that you talk on the phone to friends who are in the business? Do you find that you have maintained friendships with fellow fellow artists? Yeah, um, in a way, I suppose. I mean, like where we live at the moment in Catskill in New York, it's become very much because everyone moved up here during the pandemic. I mean, we're, we're the old guard. We've been here for 12 years. And it, when it was still a bit more kind of like, uh, it was very rural. Um, but in a way, I, I don't like it. I don't think that it, it, it's great to be around artists in a way. I mean, like I saw a, a friend of mine yesterday who's a, an artist and uh, works in a coffee shop, you know, and uh, as his day job, and and we're always talking about art, like you know, working practices and stuff, and I like that. But I mean, if I get back to Brighton, you know, and, and moving back there, and, and when it was on the verge of becoming the the big place. Um, you know, like the hippest place in the country suddenly and everyone wanted to live there. And like, I would find that everyone that I met was writing a book or having an exhibition or making an album or doing these wonderful things, you know. And like a friend of mine, someone said to him, yeah, I'm writing a book and he, he's a writer, but he said, oh, really? Yeah, neither am I. 
and I, <laughs> yeah, it, it's, I did actually say to somebody, I'm moving from Brighton because I'm just, like, I'm sick and tired of it. I said to somebody, I, I just wish someone would talk to me about gutters, about, you know, the gutters on their house, but no one does. It's just all about their, you know, so their creative things. So when you work at what you're doing, you go away from it, in a way you want to rejoin the world. You don't want a continuation of what you're in. You've got no space from it. It's oppressive. So, like, I moved to a, a deeply unfashionable town and moved to a suburb of it and uh, lived in a bungalow. And when I moved there, I met this woman from across the road and she was like, uh, oh, yeah, well, it's a nice neighbourhood, this. Yeah, of course. I'm having terrible trouble with my gutters right now. <laughs> and I saw her, like, what? You know, she was fantastic. She came, she was... Great value, you know, she came out of the house one day with her sister who was a nun and she said to her sister, she said, have you seen my bush? And like, you know, there always be things like this that were sort of like, and I, you shouldn't really laugh at things like that. <laughs> but there is like some very big sort of um, poetic significance of talking about gutters because the gutters need to be cleared out so the things can flow smoothly and almost the creative process is almost like you need to talk about gutters so your own artistic gutter can be given oh, a break I, I didn't even think of that you know just like I don't think that art can feed on itself and creativity needs fuel from outside you need the world you can't just be like and this kind of, you know, artist idol. I don't think much gets done. Uh, and I don't think much of any kind of worth or significance or whatever or relevance will happen. Um, it becomes um, an academic, uh, I, you know, exercise really. You know, I I I, I love, love to make making music and writing stuff. It's it's really, it's what we do, and it's like I never want to be away from it. And I, I would talk to anyone about it. I'd never be one of those people who doesn't want to talk about it at all. Yeah. Um, I think that you've that you have made for me the album of the summer but not only that it's a to me it's a summer album like it sounds like the summer that's good some of it sounds like you know like uh, a dull day in April to me <laughs> that's very nice that you say that you know I mean like uh, um, yeah I, I, I 
it's it's funny how these things come up, you know. With the that album is is like, you know, this part of me it's like I had to escape from this the 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 world of COVID. I mean, like, I, it nearly fucking killed me. I know. I, I did nearly die of that, um, and I think there's a combination of like well i couldn't go anywhere and i was always going somewhere i was always going to england or 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 you know and when i was there i'd be driving to somewhere i'd be driving from manchester to exeter or something you know or i'd be you know i'd be driving to nashville and then driving to somewhere like in georgia or somewhere you know and 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 going with these places and playing and everything and stuff happening but nothing was happening i mean i actually found having a heart attack really kind of like everyone else is freaking out and i'm thinking this is all right you know i mean i was dying i didn't actually realize that because it it was interesting it was like god what's that you know and they're sticking all these things into me and plugging in stuff and this machine's bleeping like what's all that i was probably high as a kite but it was the most exciting thing that had happened for weeks because nothing happened so you start to live in your head you start to sort of like so i had this idea that i think i started to invent a place because I wasn't going to a place and I wasn't inventing somewhere wonderful. I was inventing somewhere real as a surrogate life for myself in a way, maybe. Um, and also the other part of it is because I had this near-death experience and bit by bit I'm realising that guy asked me if I wanted to see a chaplain. Like this guy goes, would you like to see a chaplain? I'm going, fuck off. That's the last thing I need. <laughs> and, and like, it's like, he didn't ask that as a joke. They only ask that when they think you're on the way out. Otherwise, they don't care, you know, about your religious kind of what-sits or anything like that. I mean, oh, and why didn't they go and tell Amy that I was all right? Because she wasn't allowed in the hospital because everything was locked down, you know. So, like, she's in the parking lot wondering what's going on. I'm going, could, could someone go out into the car park and tell my wife that I'm okay? And they're going, yeah, we'll get to that. I, oh. And I'm thinking, fuck. You know, and it was also the uh, anniversary of my... Uh, two years previously, my my ex, my daughter's mother, had died. So my daughter was going through hell with that. And I'm going, uh, listen, I can't die today. Just keep me alive. My daughter will kill me if I die today. You know, it was just <laughs> like this ridiculous kind of... But um, so... Like, you know, and it was all, uh, it, it all made me laugh. And I'm, I'm like in an, I'm in an intensive care isolation room. People put on space suits to come because like, they thought I might still have COVID. And uh, like they're putting on space suits to come in and take my temperature. And I'm like, oh, that was all a bit weird. 
And then as I sort of came out of that and then I came out of hospital, I'm going, Christ, that was actually a bit close. <laughs> yeah. So, so I I think that because of that, I started to sort of like in the kind of, I had this idea of this place, like which is the town of standing water on this kind of, existence and everything on um, um, uh there was a kind of an another element of like where do i come from what where am what is, is it what what where are we you know and trying to get get centered in a way um that's why the record starts off with a song called southern rock which is, um, it's me, it's, you know, confused. It, it is this, and then bit by bit, you get a bit more centred. And, um, yeah, it's odd, really. I don't know. I mean, I can't explain it away as a concept album or something, because it goes all over the place. I mean, yeah. there's a song... There's a song called Radium Girls, which has got nothing to do with it in a way. I don't know. I, I, I can't really sort of, I, I mean, I'm sure I could make something up to make it seem like it has something to do with it. And I don't know, but it all feels okay together to me, you know. It's it's a, it's a that thing we were talking about, about vibe, where the sometimes the connective tissue is, is invisible because I just playing it all the way through. Um, it, yeah, it all, it all feels like a piece. So, you know, it's really lovely. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I, um, I, I was thinking about this, um, a song called High Seas and like, I always think it's like this small boat, but I think I see the lifeboat station when I'm in England, I always see the lifeboat station. And those people, they, you know, they have to go out and rescue people. And it's any, any, any weather. And like they they will not be, like there's been moves to make them like a government, like a state funded organization. And they've resisted that because you know, there was uh, really the case with the refugees in the English Channel where they were, they were basically trying to tell them who they could and couldn't rescue. Mm. And it's, I don't know, there's all this stuff, you know, but I, I like, I think about that. And it, it's kind of like, I, I always think of a, like, a, a, have you ever been out on the sea in a small boat? Yeah, I have. And it's like that, you know, and I I tried to get this, this kind of movement is in it, you know, and yeah. I don't know why I'm talking about that. Actually. I'm, I'm just mentioning it, yeah. It's a great record. And I also, I love how it closes. I mean, it's, the sequencing is great, but the the, la the last song to me is like, it's per it just feels perfect. Oh, we were talking about that today. Like there's a, you have to have a level of 
you know, like men get, well, everyone kind of gets deluded as they get older, you know, I mean, like they think, yeah, they can look at themselves in the mirror and like go, yeah, they're still, still like the same 27 year old that's been looking back at me, you know, for all these, and they're not, you know, and like the, this window reflection is interfering with my James Bond fantasy. It's, it's like, Who's that? Oh, it's me. <laughs> you know that? Yeah. 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 And the reality and having to sort of like, you know, where was going? Like, I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get rid of a whole load of clothes because they're never going to fit me again. You know, like, I mean, this thing, you know, as you get older, you realize that you, 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 you're supposed to gather wisdom, but you also gather bulk. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah but then you know you can walk around and this is most men think they're james bond yeah they do it's kind of like i'm this uh, and then you see yourself and you're like, oh must be something wrong <laughs> the glass is distorted <laughs> yeah with because what you see doesn't square with what with what you feel. Oh, this, this kind of image and like, well, you've got this image, you know, I mean, like, you know, and I said to Amy, you know, I'm, I'm okay with it. I mean, like I, for years, you know, I was sort of like, you know, I was just, it's not going to be long and I'll, I'll metamorphose into Brian Ferry or someone, you know, it's not going to happen and I'm okay with it now. Yeah. I think it's easier to be us than to be Brian Ferry because Brian Ferry has a lot more to let go than I did ever did. Yeah, he's still got the hone of Pionette. Won't <laughs> <I> play. <laughs> My brother-in-law went to see him in Pittsburgh, and it was like I think it was the last night of the tour, his solo tour, and like. They're rocking away. I mean, we've seen them a few days before um, uh, up near Albany, and uh, they were all, you know, we had this hotshot young band, and they had all that in ears, and they were really quite good, but it was kind of like there was no kind of guts to it. There was none of that kind of visceral thing of people trying to get the most out of an instrument. The instrument's going to do it because you've got the best equipment and the best of everything and like it's kind of I missed something visceral in it but it was no denying it, it was it was really good and he was great he's got a lot a lot of voices gone but it was okay he had delivery and he still had the hone of pianette that he played and like so they were doing it all with these in-ear monitors and they had Chris Spedding who was like reading all the chords off a music stand and just playing some chords and it was like, God, he, he looks like he doesn't want to be there mm. to me. But anyway, when my, uh, my brother-in-law, Amy's brother went, went to see him in Pittsburgh, like they get to nearly the end of the show and they're ramping it up on everything. And the sound went out. Like the PA just died. 
completely. So there was nothing. You could hear the drums. So the drums were in a perspex box. So you can racky cracky, you know, like nothing going on. You hear like un unamplified guitar strings, you know. <laughs> <laughs> like, but the band didn't know they were playing along they were blessing out you know someone had to come on and go <clears throat> excuse me brian um <laughs> pa's not working and it's kind of like it it's almost like the precursor to artificial intelligence kind of like they had to be there but they could as well not have been there and suddenly they weren't actually there but they didn't know that they weren't there anymore <laughs> it's a strange thing i think what a strange idea i couldn't have imagined like 50 years ago no when you know i mean like uh, we played in a band like in the old days when i first started it was like being in the middle of world war three you know i mean like <laughs> Yes. You would know if the power went out. I think you'd notice. Yes. Yeah. I mean, really, it was like it was like being in the middle of like six sets of roadworks all at the same time, and you're trying to make sense of your bit of it, you know. guy has charisma to burn reckless eric what a conversation i really enjoyed that we'll bring him back he's so fun to talk to and uh, we only scratched the surface but at least it was a start what about you have you scratched the surface of reckless eric's discography or are you just getting started that's okay if you're just getting started here's what i would recommend work your way backwards start with leisure land and then uh, backpedal through the entire discography It'll land you somewhere in the 70s, I believe 1978, the self-titled first album on Stiff Records. In between all that, there's albums like Bungalow High, there's uh, 12 O'Clock Stereo by the Hitsville House Band, there's three albums he did with Amy Rigby, and those are all fabulous. My, um, my personal favorite, if I had to pick, no one's making me, but I'm doing it anyway, is Two-Way Family Favorites, What an Album That Is. But Leisureland is the place to start. It's a fabulous album. You need it. Go get it. RecklessEric.com. That's Reckless Eric with a C at the end. Go there to his site and see what's happening in the world of Reckless Eric. You can follow me on what's left of Twitter um, at Ember's Editor, or you can follow me on Instagram at Ember's Podcast, or just email me, editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. Please visit bombshellradio.com to find out what makes our radio station tick all day, all night, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. It seems redundant to say that, but it's true. Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use, subscribe, rate, and review, and tell all your friends. Tell people 
that used to be your friends. Maybe that's the way you can start patching things up. Let's close the show with a longer listen to They Come Free with Cornflakes, a track taken from the brand new album Leisureland by Reckless Eric. Enjoy it, and thank you as always for listening to Stereo Embers, the podcast only right here on Bombshell Radio. Thank you.